probably... From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch, friends. My name is Joseph. Back home, I'm sitting in for Tony Perkins today. So glad that you have joined us. want to remind you that you can find this show at TonyPerkins.com if you need to find reruns or watch previous episodes. encourage you to do so there at TonyPerkins.com. Today on the program, we are continuing our debrief of a big week at the Supreme Court. What more do we know, if anything, from the Supreme Court on the Dobbs decision? We're going to have a conversation with Aaron Hawley, who is a senior counsel at the Alliance Defending Freedom, who helped with the case preparation. At the end of the program, we're going to talk about the theological debates around abortion. Why is it that there are people making a Christian or biblical case for abortion? Is it a good one or not? We'll talk about that in our worldview segment at the end of the program with David Clausen. But the headlines for now, Congress was busy last night trying to pass a continuing resolution to prevent another government shutdown. They ended up doing so. And with all the things over the last couple of years that the federal government and their vaccine mandate was a big part of the discussion in the continuing resolution debate last night. Joining me now to talk about it with the latest is Congressman Matt Rosendale from Montana. Congressman, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you so much, Joseph. Good to be here today. Well, we're glad to have you. Tell us, is the passage of this uh, continuing resolution good news? Uh, not from my perspective. It certainly isn't. Uh, again, it spends far too much money. We've seen things that were inserted in there, uh, such as $7 billion to expand the uh, program for evacuees leaving Afghanistan, bringing tens of thousands more not only to the country, but helping to facilitate their their location around the country after uh, we know that they've been brought here without being properly vetted. And that's very, very disturbing to myself and many of the people across Montana, certainly. Uh, most recently, we've seen one of the evacuees who was brought into the uh, country. We had 10 that were located in Missoula. And out of the 10, one had been arrested for allegedly raping a young woman, uh, brought before the law enforcement, the first law enforcement officer that called him. He said he was a world traveler. And when he was brought into the courts to have bail uh, posted, the defense attorney that was provided to him said that there was a problem because of cultural and language barriers that facilitated this this rape upon this young woman. Uh, this is just the beginning of, of, of major problems that we expect to see across the nation by doing this. And so I've got a, a major problem with just even just that one component. I do believe that uh, we missed an opportunity to use the uh, extension or the, the passage of this continuing resolution to stop this crazy, tyrannical um, concept of, of President Biden's to impose mandates on everyone and everything. Uh, we knew it was going to come to this level. Fortunately, I have an attorney general, uh, state attorney general back in Montana, Austin Knudsen, who is also working with the other state's attorney generals to file lawsuits to prohibit some of these things, whether it's through OSHA, or uh, uh, CMS or exactly whichever agency that they need to um, attack that's, that is uh, trying to uh, force these mandates upon the country. I do want to get into the vaccine mandate issue and its connection to this. But first, explain to us 
Why is it that Congress is working on a continuing resolution rather than a budget? Boy, I'll tell you, that, that is the question of the day, Joseph. You know, uh, back in the Montana legislature when I was serving there, the only constitutionally uh, charged uh, job that we had every session when we met was to develop a budget and to appropriate those funds properly. And Congress cannot seem to get its act together to do that. But, but at the end of the day, that falls right in the lap of leadership that does not set the environment with which we can do that. Um, we should be debating this budget. We should be having discussions about what's included, what is not included in it. And then Congress is supposed to appropriate those funds. And by just passing these continuing resolutions, uh, nothing uh, is thoroughly uh, investigated. We are not performing our oversight duties properly. And, and so it's just, as we always hear, uh, kicking the football down the, down the field. And explain to me a little bit more the differences there. Is a continuing resolution simply a short-term budget, or are there bigger differences in that? No, what they do, I mean, as, as we have seen, there's always a way for Congress to insert other things into this continuing resolution. But at the basic um, concept, okay, the core of it is just the, the continuing funding of things as they currently exist. I'm sorry, but there's a lot of things that currently exist that government is funding that a lot of my constituents would prefer that I had a discussion about debate and about the appropriation of them to make sure that they were eliminated because we do not support it and, and we have not had the opportunity to do so. Part of the discussion around the continuing resolution, much of the news out of last night, has to do with an amendment that Senator Lee proposed. And I want to play a clip of this of the speech that he he gave in support of his amendment and then give you a chance to respond to this. If you don't want to get the virus, get the vaccine. But the answer to someone not agreeing with your medical advice is not to fire them. And it sure as heck isn't to have the president of the United States find every employer in America that doesn't want to do this, whether they have religious objections or otherwise. This is wrong. We know it's wrong. We can stop this right now. Congressman, what was Senator Lee trying to do there? Well, what he was trying to do is convey the truth to the nation. And we have gone far too long the last 11 months without having the truth shared with us. And that is, um, if you, the, the, the vaccines are readily available for anyone who wants to take it. And if you would like to, you should be able to. And we want to make sure that they are available. But we still do live in a land where there's a Bill of Rights that protects our, our rights that were granted to us by God, not by the government. And if you choose not to, whether it's for medical, religious purposes, whatever, you should not be forced to take this vaccine. And that is what we all have been trying to work towards. I mean, it is amazing. We were fortunate. We had Senator Lee uh, bring uh, a speech to the Senate floor, golly day, about three months ago uh, in regards to just the mask mandates, that the uh, difference that we have between the House side of the Capitol and the Senate side of the Capitol. So apparently there is some kind of invisible barrier between the House and the Senate somewhere around the rotunda that makes it so you don't have to worry about COVID issues when you're on the Senate side. But on the House side, uh, Nancy Pelosi is able to impose all these additional restrictions upon the members of Congress. And, and again, most of these things are merely arbitrary and don't have any scientific foundation whatsoever. And, and basically, we should be allowed to uh, exercise our, our freedoms and our liberties. 
Well, I, I think that every American has seen some version of what you just described in the Capitol, where the rules are different 100 feet from each other. And it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense if we really are combating a virus. But this vote that the Senate... Uh, Republicans that Senator Lee sponsored yesterday, what it would have done, uh, just to remind people, is it would have defunded the part of the government that would enforce the vaccine mandates that Biden has imposed. Now, this was just the right to have this vote was uh, hotly contested and aggressively fought for by the Republicans. They ended up losing that vote. But why did they work so hard to make that vote happen? Because it was the opportunity for the again for the American people to actually hear what the truth is and to see that there are Republicans here in Washington D.C. that understand the uh, the strife, if you will, that the balance of the country is going through because of these mandates that are being imposed by the president. And and we do understand it, we do feel it, and there's many of us that are exercising every single tool that is available to us to try and eliminate these these mandates. And if we can eliminate funding at the federal level, then that keeps them from doing that. I'm fortunate. I, I, I come from a state that the governor, Governor Gianforte, and again, uh, uh, Attorney General Austin Knudsen, they got together. There was uh, legislation that was passed at the state level to eliminate a, any mandates. But we are, we're not so sure how these federal overrides are, are going to impact some of those things. And so that's why these additional lawsuits have been filed. And I, I myself have uh, made it perfectly clear that I will use every tool that is available and I will enter in any legal action that is available to me to keep these mandates from being imposed on the people across the state of Montana and, and across our country. Now, of course, the Republicans are in a minority in Washington, D.C. right now, small minorities, but a minority nonetheless. What other actions are available? What other actions are being taken uh, to push back against these vaccine mandates on employers? So we, we see the Congressional Review Acts. We've been trying to get those exercised as well, uh, Joseph, and that's a, another tool that is available. But it, these are difficult. When you're in the minority, there are difficult tools to use to gather enough votes in order to exercise them to, to make these um, uh, mandates basically to either lock them up in a legal process or a review process with which they cannot be then implemented. And, and so when I came to Congress recognizing that I was going to be in the minority, I said our, our job is to try and get a few of the more moderate Democrats that we always hear about um, to see if they would join us and do what is the right thing on many of these pieces of legislation. The, the next uh, plan B, if you will, would be to make sure that we can keep the Senate together uh, with the filibuster uh, staying in place to be the firewall. And then the last resort is to work together with the state's attorneys generals and make sure that they have the tools that they need so that they can file these lawsuits, whether it's through the private uh, sector representing private um, firms or whether it is directly against the, the federal government and or those agencies to keep these things from being implemented. And, and unfortunately, we're seeing the uh, the wheels slowly put the, the mandates on hold, but there are different parts of not only the government, like the military, which is very, very uh, disappointing to see them implementing uh, these mandates where I hear every week from 15, 18-year veterans that, that are leaving service 
uh, is, is specifically because of, of these mandates. And then the, uh, the additional pressure that the administration has placed upon a lot of the private firms, and we see them now buckling under that the private firms are also starting to try and implement some of these mandates where uh, the government isn't able to reach directly into. And, and, and again, fortunately, in the state of Montana, those private firms are facing very steep uphill challenges because the state was able to pass the prohibition on any type of mandates. Uh, we're speaking with Congressman Matt Rosendale from Montana. Congressman, about one minute left. Much of the news this week was about the Omicron variant. We've heard a lot of conversation about that. Is that relevant in any way to what's happening in Washington, D.C.? Has it changed the way anybody feels about the mandates or the federal government's response to coronavirus in general? Only the Democratic Party. They see this as a yet another um, message that they can use to try and keep people in a lockdown mode, to keep control over the, uh, the population and, and impose their tyrannical tactics on us for an extended period of time. Congressman Rosendale, we appreciate your time and we also appreciate your uh, vigilance and your willingness to push back against the overreach of the federal government on this issue. Thank you so much for being Thank with us so today much. and all you do. We will continue to follow this because if it's not Delta, it's Omicron, and it may well be something else after that. And so we will sadly have to continue to track this story. But next, coming up after the break, we're going to discuss Dobbs a little bit more. Is Roe versus Wade uh, soon to be over? We'll talk about it with Aaron Hawley, senior counsel from the Alliance Defending Freedom. What's the Supreme Court doing now? How long until we know? Stay with us. We'll talk about it when we come back right after the break. Are you struggling to spend consistent time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. The Stand on the Word reading plan takes you through daily scripture in an engaging manner to help you stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start this adventure today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. With the current division and confusion of our culture, it is so important for Christians to root ourselves in the truth of God's word so that we are prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have. For this purpose, Family Research Council launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. The Center applies the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to current issues. This helps Christians understand and live by a biblical worldview, know why scripture must be authoritative, and equips believers to advance and defend the faith in workplaces, schools, communities, and the public square. The experts at the center address and provide resources on issues like religious liberty, abortion, voting, marriage, and sexuality. To access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series, go to frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including blogs, 
interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org slash subscriptions. At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. This week, one of the most significant weeks at the Supreme Court in at least a couple generations on the issue of abortion. Dobbs versus Jackson's Women's Health Clinic could be the decision that seems the that sees the overturn of Roe versus Wade and the overturn of the so-called constitutional right to an abortion that America has been living under since 1973 that has led to the death of more than 60 million children. Is this era almost over? Here to discuss that with me is Aaron Hawley, senior counsel at the Alliance Defending Freedom. Aaron, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, we are glad to have you. It's been about 48 hours since all our arguments happened. We've all had a chance to kind of think about it and reflect a little bit. Has your opinion changed at all in the last 48 hours? How are you feeling? Uh, really good. Um, I could not have been more pleased with oral argument. Uh, Mississippi's Solicitor General did a fantastic job. And the Supreme Court got to hear a full-throated argument to reverse Roe versus Wade for the first time in nearly 30 years. And they were really receptive. I was really pleased uh, with the questions asked by Justice Kavanaugh, by Justices Barrett, um, and as the Chief Justice as well. So I think it's, you know, it's always so difficult to predict the Supreme Court, but all indications from oral argument were that the Supreme Court is seriously considering overturning Roe versus Wade. And we are certainly praying for that outcome. One of the things that I appreciate about the access accessibility to the Supreme Court now is it seems to be one of the few places where the best and brightest get together to actually discuss things with each other. And we get to hear the best arguments on both sides, legally and otherwise. But Justice Sotomayor had some good exchanges with Scott Stewart, the Solicitor General from the state of Mississippi. And she made an argument about the impact of abandoning their legal theory that led them to Roe versus Wade and what that might mean for other cases. I want to play that and then let you respond. Absolutely. Virtually every state defines a brain death as death. Yet the literature is filled with episodes of people who are completely and utterly brain dead responding to stimuli. Um, it, there's about 40% of dead people who, if you touch their feet, the foot will recoil. There are spontaneous acts by dead brain people. So I don't think that 
a response to uh, by a fetus necessarily proves that there's a sensation of pain or that there's consciousness. Actually, that was a different clip, but it's also an important argument. She's comparing a, a, an unborn child to a dead person because they respond. What's she trying to say there? So, so this was in response, actually, to an argument made by Mississippi's Solicitor General, where he explained um, that this one of the changes between 1973 and 1992 and today that should make it possible for the Supreme Court to overrule a prior decision is change science. And one of those changed scientific facts is that there are a significant number of doctors who are now concerned uh, with uh, the fact that fetuses may very well uh, be able to feel pain. Um, there's a number of ways they assess this. I think one interesting fact, actually, is that if you are a mom carrying a child, um, if your child is 15 weeks along and you have to undergo a certain type of procedure that might impact the child, they give that child anesthesia. And yet, uh, we allow abortions up to viability or about 22 weeks, seven weeks later in this country, which is just crazy. Um, but the Solicitor General is explaining uh, that this, this literature explains uh, that babies recoil when they are poked at 12 weeks, uh, or excuse me, at 15 weeks, which indicates that they may feel pain. Um, they also have rising cortisol levels, which indicate stress. Um, babies at 12 weeks, they have studies of twins um, in which the twins actually relate to one another. So there's this uh, growing scientific literature that indicates uh, that babies may well be able to feel pain as early as 12 weeks. And the Solicitor General was simply arguing that states should be able to take account of this new evidence, um, which led Justice uh, Sotomayor to say, well, you know, who cares? Um, because dead people can do this as well. Um, pu putting that, that to, to one side, uh, I think it's certainly a very strong argument that state legislatures should be able to consider the possibility that babies may be able to feel pain. And, and that just really highlights, I think our comments highlight uh, that this is a legislative issue, uh, that the Constitution is silent on abortion, uh, and the court should get out of the business of legislating abortion policy. And I think that's a primary argument from the state of Mississippi, because mm -hmm. from the very beginning with Roe versus Wade, it was really a legislative action. This trimester framework that they set up, then they tried to revise it with Casey in 1992. But all of this is really an attempt to uh, create this framework that we can legislate something which is really not the job of the Supreme Court. Now, we were together at a dinner on Wednesday night. You laid out your kind of three scenarios at w mm -hmm. where you thought the court might go. Uh, what are those? Absolutely. So the first option, and the one that I uh, very most uh, definitely hope the court takes, uh, is overruling, overruling, excuse me, Roe versus Wade and Casey versus Planned Parenthood, uh, the follow-along case. Um, and I think you got a good indication on. Wednesday's argument that this is the direction that a number of Supreme Court justices are leaning. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, I know a lot of people were watching his questions, listening to his questions, because he's one of the new justices. And what Justice Kavanaugh said uh, was, you know, the Constitution is neither pro-choice uh, nor pro-life. Uh, and given that fact, given that the Constitution is silent, shouldn't the court, quote, be scrupulously neutral as to abortion and return that issue to the people so that states can protect life. Um, so this strongly indicates that he's, uh, you know, tired of the justices being in this position of having to legislate uh, and create rules uh, that are extra constitutional. Uh, so the court could go all of the way. Um, strike down Roe versus Wade. Uh, you'd mentioned Justice Sotomayor earlier and her concern about other cases. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that the Roe uh, is unique 
uh, among all of the Supreme Court's decisions uh, in that it is the only decision that has recognized a right uh, to um, a right to something that includes the right to actually kill another person. Uh, so, so completely different. Um, and so I think the court uh, will hopefully recognize that um, and overall row. There's a couple of other uh, options as well. Uh, the second option uh, being uh, one where the court kind of goes in the middle. Uh, the court could simply uphold Mississippi's law. Mississippi has a really common sense law. Yeah. It applies at 15 weeks uh, when babies can do all sorts of things like smile and stretch and maybe feel pain. Aaron, I need to cut you off right there. We're going to continue this. Uh, we're going to let you finish the answer to that question, but we are out of time. It's a hard break. Come back. We're going to fin finish this conversation with Aaron Holly when we come back. Stay with us. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Fackholm, sitting in for Tony Perkins. Remind you that you can find this show and every show and every segment at TonyPerkins.com. We are continuing our conversation with Aaron Holly, Senior Counsel at the Alliance Defending Freedom, about the Dobbs decision, the case that was argued this week at the Supreme Court. And Aaron, we had talked about the three potential scenarios uh, before the break that you thought the Supreme Court had uh, available to them, you'd gotten through about one and a half. So I'm going to let you finish that. Where is the Supreme Court going? Right. So number one, uh, overall row, that's what we're all hoping for. Uh, number two, simply upper, uphold Mississippi's law. Uh, so as, as I was mentioning, Mississippi's law is a really common sense law. It protects life at 15 weeks. 
uh, when the procedure is especially brutal, uh, when babies can do things like smile and open and close their hands, uh, they have all of their organs, they have a heartbeat. Um, so the court could simply decide to uphold Mississippi's law. If you listen to the argument, uh, this seemed to be the direction that the chief was leaning. I I'm hoping he'll go further. Uh, but he mentioned numerous times uh, that the viability line, which currently forbids states from protecting life before 22 weeks, uh, is completely arbitrary. Even even Rose author, Justice Blackman, uh, recognized that the line was arbitrary. So uh, the chief might uh, then uphold Mississippi's law since the viability line is arbitrary. Then he can uphold the 15-week line um, in Mississippi's law. So that could be a middle position the court takes. Uh, and then the third and final uh, option uh, that the court has would be to affirm the decision below and to find that the Constitution forbids states from protecting life prior to viability. Um, so that would mean that Mississippi's law would fall uh, and that states would be unable to protect life at 15 weeks um, or 20 weeks or anything until 22 weeks. Um, I'm really hoping uh, that the court doesn't do that. There's simply nothing about a right to an abortion in the Constitution's text, structure, or history. I think Mississippi made this argument really uh, compelling uh, on Wednesday. Um, and it seems like a number of justices were convinced that because the Constitution is silent, uh, this is an issue that it leaves to the people and so that they can go before their legislatures um, and debate this policy issue uh, rather than leave it uh, to a majority of the Supreme Court. Now, Aaron, for those of us who are observers of the Supreme Court merely, we we uh, listen to oral arguments and then we stand around the proverbial Vatican for six months and wait for a puff of smoke to come out and tell us what has happened. You were a uh, clerk at the Supreme Court for the Chief Justice. You've been behind the curtain. What is happening? What are they doing between now and the time that the rest of us find out what the decision is? Absolutely. Well, today was a tremendously important day um, for the Dobbs case. Uh, today, the court uh, met in conference, um, and conference is a unique uh, happening at the Supreme Court where it's only the justices. So they meet on Friday to discuss Wednesday's cases, and uh, Dobbs was on Wednesday. Uh, so they met today, and they meet in the conference room, um, and again, it's only the justices. So they sit at this long table in order of seniority. There's actually a double door, um, and the idea being that, you know, no, no clerk or, or no, you know, court reporter or no nobody um, can come uh, and listen uh, to what is being said in conference because there's this double door, uh, and the discussions there are completely confidential. Uh, the discussion starts off with the chief justice laying out the facts of the case, uh, and then his view as to how it should be decided. Each justice then proceeds uh, to explain their view of the case and what they believe should happen, um, ending with uh, the most junior justice, in this case, uh, Justice Barrett. Uh, then they proceed to vote, again, starting with the Chief Justice, uh, all the way down um, to Justice Barrett. Um, so they each have a chance to have their say. Um, it's very orderly, um, usually pretty brief. Um, and then they vote. And this is usually the first chance uh, the justices will have had to discuss the case uh, all together. They, they don't really sit down um, and, like you might think and, and talk about the case a lot beforehand. Uh, so today is immensely important. How much time will they dedicate to that conversation? It really varies. I mean, it could be uh, as little as 20 minutes um, or it could go on to, to a couple of hours. I think in most cases it's, uh, you know, probably shy of an hour. It used to be the case the justices uh, all lived together at a boarding house in the very early days. Uh, and, uh, you know, legend has it that the 
justices would sit at the dinner table and discuss cases for hours on end. Um, and that's just not simply how it happened today. Most of the, the arguments uh, that the justices have amongst one another uh, happen in the papers and the actual drafting process. There is this sense among some, and I will include myself in this, that when the court is going to the left, they do so fairly aggressively. Obergefell, they redefined marriage. Bostock, they redefined sex. But there's this sense that anything to the right has to be kind of measured and gradual. Is that a fair assessment? And is there any, any possibility that that influences what the court does in this case? You know, I think that a number of uh, sort of conservative justices have this idea of sort of Burkean humility. Um, and it's this idea that, that incremental changes in the law are, are better than giant leaps. And while that might be a perfectly good legal theory um, in theory, um, in this case, I, I think for a number of reasons, uh, it doesn't fit. Um, as Mississippi explained so ably, uh, Roe versus Wade is egregiously wrong. There, there's nothing in the Constitution uh, that supports it. And so then you look to stare decisis factors, and which means uh, stare decisis is this idea that a court should sort of have some sort of special reason uh, to overrule past cases. Uh, and here they clearly exist. Not only is the decision egregiously wrong, um, but it harms uh, unborn children and doesn't allow states to protect either women or children. Aaron Hawley, in about 10 seconds, how long do you think it's going to be before we find out the answer? It'll be June. Um, I wish it were sooner, but but yeah, I, I expect it would be toward the end days of June. It then we will pray until June. Aaron Holly, Senior Counsel of the Alliance Defending Freedom, thank you so much for your time and your effort on this. Thanks for having me. And we will come back continuing our conversation about Dobbs, kind of, about abortion. There is a Christian case being made for abortion. Is it a good one? We'll talk about that in our Worldview segment with David Clawson when we come back right after the break. Stay with us. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets, and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs. Why should we care about this freedom? At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe that it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a tragic reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to increase globally. In scripture, God calls Christians to pray and care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. 
Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To access Family Research Council's latest resources and to learn more about religious freedom and what you can do to help the persecuted, go to frc.org slash religious liberty. Attention university students. Are you looking for an internship that will help you grow as a Christian leader and allow you to positively influence the culture? Then Family Research Council's internship program is for you. FRC's life-changing 12- to 15-week internship program will prepare and equip you for the next step in your professional journey. You'll enjoy a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training. All of these offerings were created to aid you in your personal and professional development. As an intern, you will have the opportunity to work side-by-side with our experts in policy, communications, event planning, and more. The real-world experience you gain will prepare you to pursue a career of influence and make a difference wherever God calls you. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org internships to apply. Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have decided to spend your Friday with us, or whatever day you are streaming this at TonyPerkins.com. Before we get into our next segment, we have an exciting announcement. Tony has been telling you about the stand mug announcements and giveaways that we've had all week, and I have a winner for you of this fabulous stand mug. And the winner today is Anne from California. And Anne tells us that she stands for truth, which comes from God's word to guide my life and how I think, raise my family, interact and care for others and direct others to God. Well, we stand with you, Anne, and congratulations. If you have not yet received your special stand mug, you can do so by texting MUG to 67742 to be entered as a winner, or you can buy one for yourself or your loved ones for Christmas at TonyPerkins.com. That's why we stand. Now, in today, the program... We have been discussing, in significant part, in addition to continuing resolutions, the Dobbs decision, what it means for our country. But I was at the Supreme Court on Wednesday, and one of the things I was surprised about, at the competing rallies that took place on the steps of the Supreme Court, and they were dueling competing rallies where people were about 45 feet from each other, in microphones being projected to different crowds. So you could hear each one uh, very clearly uh, simultaneously. It was just hard to hear what either of them were saying because they were all speaking at the same time. So that in itself is is an interesting experience. But when I paid attention to the pro-abortion side of the argument, I was surprised by the frequency with which I heard Christian, biblical, religious defenses of abortion. Why is that? Why are they saying that God wants us to be free? God wants us to be independent. God wants women to be able to make decisions for themselves. Is that true? Well, with me to discuss that is David Clausen, who is our director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. David, welcome. Hey, good to be with you, Joseph. Well, um, I haven't had a chance to talk with you about this yet. When we, I want to get into the merits of this, but you've observed everything that's happened this week. What's your sense of what the court's going to do? How are you feeling? 
I'm feeling optimistic, Joseph. I think um, I was talking to Tony about this the other day, and just we've already seen answered prayer. The fact that this case made it to the Supreme Court, the fact that they took up Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, uh, the fact that the Solicitor General, Scott Stewart, did such a good job yesterday articulating uh, the case for why Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey is so egregiously wrong. We're already seeing answers to prayer. And so I'm optimistic, Joseph. Uh, I think we have five, possibly six votes uh, that are going to side on the side of life. And so obviously as Christians, we need to be praying uh, from now until June when we get a decision. Uh, But I am optimistic. Yeah. Well, historically, this debate has been there's often this framing of it's the religious people versus the non-religious people. To their credit, the Catholic Church was kind of way ahead of a lot of the Protestant evangelical churches on this, um, and they were kind of flying the flag uh, for life um, before many others did. And, and I think the lines do break down a little bit that way. There's kind of the, the Christian community tends to be pro is predominantly pro-life. The more secular are you, you are the less likely you are to be pro-life. Though the uh, I had a dinner on Wednesday night with a secular, secularist for life. And so that, they, that community exists as well. But on Wednesday, I heard these people who were really seemed to be uh, identifying enthusiastically as Christians, but saying that God actually likes abortion. He wants me to be able to have abortions. Why is that? Yeah, and that, I think it does surprise a lot of people to realize that there are those who are arguing as Christians for abortion rights. Uh, just in September, actually, FRC posted a tweet that said the Bible is unapologetically and ardently pro-life. And that tweet went viral. Actually, 18 million people saw it. 200,000 people engaged on it. I think 17,000 people responded to it. Most of the people saying, you guys have no idea what you're talking about when it comes to what the Bible teaches. And the main argument they kept going to is actually the Bible teaches us that life begins with breath. And if you know some of our Washington Watch listeners will remember, that's actually the same argument that then uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg made when he was running for president back in 2019. He, he said, you know, as someone who's grown up as an Episcopal, I'm a faithful Christian. I read the Bible. It teaches that life begins with breath. Therefore, my Christian convictions propel me to a pro-choice position. And he got coverage from the Atlantic and other outlets. And well, it's true that God gives us the breath of life, right? Does that mean that God is pro-abortion? Absolutely not. And so let, let's look at that verse, because the verse that they always cite is Genesis 127, okay. which says that the Lord, uh, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So that's the verse that they're all pointing to. There's a couple things to note about that. That passage actually says nothing about Adam himself actually breathing. It says God breathed into him the breath of life. It doesn't say actually anything about Adam taking a breath. We can assume that he started breathing shortly afterwards. It doesn't say, though, anything about Adam breathing. But we need to realize Adam's creation is utterly unique. It's kind of, yeah, not all of us are created that way, right? So Adam's creation as the first man is not paradigmatic. It's not representative of how anybody else was created. Once Adam and Eve are created, the natural biological processes is how new life is created. And so I think just that's important to realize, to realize, but it's also important to realize the unborn are breathing in a sense that they receive oxygen. They don't receive it through their mouth, uh, but they do, they, they, re- they do yeah, receive they do. oxygen and their cells are able to function. Adam began breathing through his mouth as an adult male because that's the point of development that God created him. Right. But again, that's not representative. That's not paradigmatic of how every single person after Adam was created 
are brought into the world. And so, again, that misuse of Genesis 127 is a really poor hermeneutic that falls flat when you look at the text. When did the Christian case for abortion start being made? Is that recent? I think, um, sure. I think in some sense it's recent. I think, um, so I wrote a booklet on this uh, after the Pete Buttigieg Mm -hmm. comments came out. What is the Christian church historically taught about this? And for 2,000 years, going back to the first century, uh, Christians, pastors, uh, teachers have affirmed the personhood of the unborn. But I do think it's, it's, it's within maybe the last hundred years, Joseph, that you have denominations, uh, theologically liberal denominations uh, that at the beginning of the last century, they threw out the resurrection, they threw out the reliability of Scripture, so that they, they really untethered themselves from Scripture. Um, and then when you got to the 1960s, 1970s, they began making arguments about marriage and about life that were untethered from Scripture. So I think that progressive theologically liberal arguments are fairly new in the last 40, 50 years uh, when you compare it to the rest of church history, where for 2,000 years, Orthodox, Protestant, Catholic have made a unified argument in favor of the personhood of the unborn. Given that, the, the, the all these arguments being made in recent decades that for thousands of years were never kind of discerned in Scripture, why is it, what's the instinct in your mind that leads people not to just walk away from the church and say, well, I don't believe the things that the church teaches. I don't think the Bible is authoritative. I don't think it's true. Therefore, I'm not a Christian. That's, I think, a very logical conclusion when a lot of people say, I don't believe the Bible. That means I'm not a Christian, right? That makes sense to me. Why do we have instead a group of people, and it's certainly not a majority, but it's a group of people who say, I don't believe the Bible, but I'm still a Christian, and the Bible doesn't actually say what we've always thought it said. What's going on there? I think there is an impulse uh, by a lot of our friends and neighbors who maybe are not really Christians. They, They wouldn't have... Uh, repented of their sins and turned in faith to Christ. But they, there's this longing for this divine sanction for what they want to be right. They, they still almost want God's blessing or the divine's blessing to live however they actually already want to live their lives anyway. I think, you know, as Christians, we know Genesis 3. We live in a fallen world. And so people, even to the, the basic thinking that we have, can be distorted. But I think there, for some, we still live in a, a culture that largely still has some respect for the Bible. Our colleague George Barna showed that 51% of Americans think they have a biblical worldview, mm-hmm. even though we know it's only 6%. But I think the vast majority of people still have some respect for the Bible, some respect for God. It's still seen as respectable to be a, a Christian, mm-hmm. and, and therefore they want to have God's sanction or God's uh, permission to basically live the way they want to live anyway. I think you're onto something, and it, it, it's a strange, I think, struggle because you're seeing this growth of quote unquote progressive Christianity and of these people who are kind of, they're on this progression away kind of from orthodoxy. And, but it also occurs to me, and I had this, this thought this week that I think is relevant to this conversation that no one has ever become a progressive Christian by reading the Bible. No one would read the Bible and say, this is what God thinks about Abortion. No one would read the Bible and say God thinks there's 400 genders. No one would read the Bible and say God thinks marriage can be anything that you want it to could be as long as these are uh, consenting adults. You need help from you know help quote unquote from Matthew Vines or Rachel Held Evans. You need all these supplements to the Bible to explain why the Bible doesn't actually say what it appears to say. And that 
I, I don't know at what point we in the church decided to start having that debate. And because I, I think there's a real debate whether pro- progressive Christianity is Christianity because do we think that the, the side making this God supports abortion, are they really trying to conform themselves to the Bible? Or are they trying to conform the Bible to themselves? You know, and that's a good question. We, I think most people uh, are familiar with the verse in Romans chapter 12 that we're to take all of our thoughts uh, or to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Well, what does that mean? It means we're supposed to be filtering everything through God's word. We're, we're filtering everything through scripture. Other verses where Paul says we take every thought captive to the Lord. And that's exactly the opposite of what takes place in progressive Christianity. What progressive Christians, and it's important to define our terms, but what by and large they're doing is importing their own ideas and trying to find, you know, read through the lines and use, you know, different hermeneutics. That's exactly what Matthew Vines did in his book, God and the Gay Christian. He had, he starts with a premise that God condones same-sex marriage, and then he goes looking for evidence in God's word. We should be doing that exact opposite, Joseph. Right. We should be reading God's word, asking for the Holy Spirit to illuminate it. But what we're doing, we read God's words. What does God want to communicate to us through his word? That's what we want to be doing when we read scripture. And, and that's the the way that once you give your life to Christ, part of that is this acknowledgement that I am submitted to a higher authority, that I am surrendering to someone who knows better, who knows more. And if we can't trust God to actually say what he thinks in scripture, then what are we doing? And if, if we're not there, if we don't think the Bible can actually be trusted, what's the point of this whole like surrender to God? Because then we're just kind of fashioning a God in our own yes. image, right? Now, Dobbs, the, the abortion debate is hot right now in America again. I don't expect it's going to go away regardless of what happens. But there's this potential of this post-real world. And what's that? what should the church be doing now? Since this is a headline issue, pastors are still planning their sermons for Sunday. Do you think people should be talking about this? Absolutely, Joseph. I think uh, we need to be right now begin preparing for a a post-Roe world, and that begins with prayer. We need to be praying for the nine justices of the Supreme Court. Each justice has about four clerks. We need to be praying for them as they research and help write their bosses, write these drafts. Uh, We need to be praying for pastors to have courage. And if you're a pastor who has, you're an under-shepherd of God's church, abortion's in the news right now. I bet there's a lot of people in your congregation that are familiar with abortion but had no idea that this case was the before the Supreme Court until you got all this news. It's a very appropriate, I think, to talk about the case. And you don't need to be political about it. Just preach Luke 1. Yeah. Uh, preach uh, Psalm 139. The Bible affirms the personhood of the unborn from cover to cover. Um, and I think that's absolutely within the purview of a responsibility of the under-shepherd of Christ's church to help them think through this major headline and taking that to God's word. And here's what the Bible teaches. Yeah. In this debate, and I, I, there's so many opportunities. There's there's the theological component about this. There's this apologetic for life, because really, what's happening legally, and I think this is really helpful to, for people to understand, is that the court at one point said, "Well, it's a trimester rule that you um, here's the rule: first, second trimester, first, second, third trimester, um, you can." have an abortion in the first trimester. You can regulate it later. They realized that was not workable. They came up with this undue burden standard. Embedded in all of this is this idea of viability, and the court discussed this on on Wednesday, and this idea that, well, you're not a person until you're viable. And to me, that argument 
and, and there, there's a, there's logical reasons that that's a problem because if you can't like support yourself, if you can't live on your own, right? And even a, even a child who is healthy can't live on its own once it's born, right? But that that implicates people with with disabilities, people who get seriously ill, people who are old. If their life is not quote unquote viable, if they can't survive on their own, are they suddenly not human? But ultimately, that gets to the underlying question of what does it mean to be human? What deter- who determines and what determines whether you are human? And that's an appropriate thing for the church to be discussing, isn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely, Joseph. And to the point you just made about personhood, our friend Nancy Piercy wrote a yeah. great book, Love Thy Body, that I'd encourage anyone to read to understand personhood. But that's what the Christian worldview does that other worldviews don't do. Other worldviews are, you know, you have a certain level of cognizance, certain certain level of ability to relate, a certain awareness of your surroundings to be considered person. Well, the Bible says you're a person at the moment of conception, and all of us are made in God's image. That's part of what it means. That, that's, the, that's at the core of what it means to be a person, is that we are made in God's image, and therefore every single person, born and unborn, has value and has inherent dignity. And that's something that, again, abortion at the end of the day is not primarily a political issue, a legal issue, a philosophical issue. It's a theological issue. And that's within the responsibility of pastors to make sure they're forming the conscience of their people to understand. That's exactly right. David Clawson, really appreciate your time, as always, and your work at the Center for Biblical Worldview. And encourage people, again, to check that out at frc.org slash worldview, the Center for Biblical Worldview. Friends, that's the program for today. So glad that you have been with us. So glad that you have been standing with us and praying with us for life all week. Continue to pray for the Supreme Court because nothing could be more important. God bless you. We will see you next time here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 